Turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, 11 through 36 is our text this morning. And welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. You're here uh, second weekend of a study in 1 Samuel. Last week we looked at the first part of the book, and here, chapter 2, verses 11 to 36, your, your timing is good. You, you, you only missed the first sermon, and I'd say go back and listen to it on the, on the podcast, but uh, you only hear about half of it. Uh, last week we had what we call the great blackout of 2021, uh, where we finished the rest of the service in the dark. So you can listen to the first 50% and maybe get caught up. Um, but here we are in 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, this series, this first series where we see the rise of Samuel prior to King Saul is what we're calling the prophet that God provides. I've entitled this message before us this morning, Spiritual Leadership, Out with the Old, In with the New. Out with the Old, In with the New. And as I did last week, since this is a lengthy passage, I'll just read it as I go through it and explain it. A couple weeks ago, you know that... Um, three of uh, your six elders and also one of our deacons was, we were out at Washington, D.C. for a pastor's conference. And while we were there over the weekend, um, throughout the weekend, uh, a particular podcast came up uh, that we would uh, often talk about, whether it was just us, the four of us talking together, or even in the larger group of pastors, this podcast came up. There's been a podcast uh, in the last few months about um, the rise and fall of the church in Seattle named Mars Hill um, over the past decade or two. Uh, that church no longer exists, but it's really a study, the study this podcast is doing through Christianity Today. This study is a study in church leadership, and they go through and highlight abuses in the leadership at Mars Hill, particularly among the senior pastor at that time. And it's, it's a good podcast to listen to to learn as a church leader, to learn about what the Scriptures say and how we can so quickly twist the Scriptures for our own uh, benefit as spiritual leaders. And so, I've been thinking a lot about church leadership and abuses in church leadership and even the gift of good leadership. And here before us, we have an account of poor spiritual leadership. In this study here, 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, uh, God is showing us that He will remove poor spiritual leadership. He will discipline and judge poor spiritual leadership, but that's not the end of the story. He will also continue to raise up leaders after His own name, and if, even after His own heart, He says in the passage. So, corrupt spiritual leadership is a thing, has been for a long time, ever since Genesis 3 and Adam. Corrupt spiritual leadership. And God would talk about that corruption all throughout the Old Testament into the prophets and here in 1 Samuel. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came and talked about corrupt human leadership, and He went directly at the corrupt spiritual leaders of Israel in His day, 1,100 years or so later than 1 Samuel. And then 2,000 years since Jesus, we still have corrupt spiritual leadership. Some of you have been under that in the past. Here in this passage, God shows us that He will do something about that corrupt spiritual leadership. He will discipline them, judge them, and He will also raise up new leaders. Ultimately, he would raise up 1,100 years later his son, his son who came as the consummate leader, the perfect leader, the exemplary leader, and who led his people from their sin into his kingdom. So, this passage, 
focuses us in on corrupt spiritual leadership. It's not one of the warm, fuzzy sermons that you're going to hear, but it's an important one. So for our outline this morning, three features of corrupt spiritual leaders. And sprinkled throughout here, you're going to see these, these details, these accounts of Samuel being raised up, and even Samuel's family. But the main thrust is corrupt spiritual leadership, and the author of 1 Samuel wants you to see, but God's going to do something. There's this boy here in the background. There's this faithful family here in the background. Let's notice first, <clears throat> corrupt spiritual leaders or corrupt leaders treat worship with contempt. That's the first thing we see in verses 11 to 21. Corrupt leaders treat worship with contempt. The passage continues from verse 10, and here on into verse 11, it says, Then Elkanah, the father of Samuel, the husband of Hannah, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We're just simply reminded here at the outset that Hannah and Elkanah have brought Samuel to live in this tabernacle slash temple structure in Shiloh. Samuel is going to be given to the Lord's service. He was about four, three or four years old at this time, and his mom and dad leave him in the care of Eli the priest. Verse 12, now we focus on a different son or different sons, if you will, no longer Samuel, but here, verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. How'd you like for Scripture to memorialize you in that way? Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And that term, knowing the Lord, maybe I'll give you some synonyms that can help you understand it. It's not just have a knowledge of. It means that they didn't respect the Lord. They didn't regard Yahweh. That's the idea. These sons of Eli were worthless men, which is, which is a term given not just to Old Testament people in the Old Testament times, but also in the New Covenant era. There are people who disregard the Lord, and even in the New Testament, they are called worthless. Why that term? Why worthless? Well, you have to understand the whole scope of biblical history. God created people after His own image. So, right there, every single soul, every single person has dignity and worth and value. But when people rebel against their Creator and don't repent and turn to the reconciliation that He offers, they remain worthless. He creates them for a purpose with dignity, but they corrupt it and become worthless to Him. You could say that all life is meant to be worship. And really, you could say that the whole earth and all human history is divided up in between two groups of people, worshipers and those who will not worship their God. And those people in Scripture are called worthless. But here you've got worthless men, two brothers, who are engaged in the public, at least, public worship of Yahweh. So their heart is far from the Lord. They don't regard Him. They don't respect Him. But they're the ones leading Israel through the motions of worship. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So here's what's happening. The priests... Hophni and Phinehas send a servant of theirs to the worshipers, and now the priests in certain sacrifices during this time, you can see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in certain sacrifices they got certain parts of the meat. 
Remember, the Levites, the, the, the priestly family of Israel, didn't get to receive, they didn't have land that they owned like the other 11 tribes. They would receive their income and food and things they needed from the worshipers of the other 11 tribes. And so these priests had a certain, certain portions of the meat that were for them, meaning certain portions weren't for them. Some of it was for God, some of it was for the actual people sacrificing, the family sacrificing. But here, they would take first priority. They would send their servant and say, go get meat, whatever, whatever kind. We want it all. So you see some spiritual abuse here in this opening, these opening few verses. Verse 15 continues, moreover, before the fat was burned, the fat was intended to be burned to Yahweh. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat for you, but only raw. So Hophni and Phinehas, they want raw meat. And if the man, the worshiper, said to this servant of the priest, if the worshiper uh, argued or, or disagreed and said, Let them burn the fat first, knowing that that's for Yahweh, and then take as much as you wish. So you see the worshiper in his right mind thinking, No, 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 the fat is for Yahweh. So, so let, let's burn the fat first, servant of the priest, and th- then give the priests whatever they want. If, if a person objected like that, rightly objected, he would say, the servant of the priest would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Spiritual bullying is nothing new. This is what's happening here. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, the young men, Hophni and Phinehas, the ones who would send their servant to get this meat. It says the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. This, this is comforting here because the Lord sees all of these abuses. He knows. Because the men, here's why it was so great in his sight, because the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Were these priests, Eli's sons, selfish? Yes, they were. But what does God say was the problem here? They were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. They looked at the system which meat they get, which meat they don't get, which meat belongs to Yahweh, which meat belongs to the worshiping family, which meat belongs to them, and they disregarded, they had contempt for that system, they just wanted whatever meat they wanted. This is the heart not liking the prescriptions that God gives in worship. This is what's happening here. Verse 18, Samuel, now we're, our attention focuses over on this little boy, maybe three years old. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. He had, you know how you might see on YouTube a video of a little boy preacher, you know, maybe a little boy with a black suit and a Bible, and he's reciting some memory verse, and you think, oh, cute, little boy preacher. Well, here it is, little boy priest. He wore the, the clothes of, of a little priest, which is the author of First Samuel's way of saying, hey, I just showed you these two men. Watch for this little boy one day. This little priest, boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So Hannah would make for him a robe each year as he got older. Remember, he's in the service of, of the Lord with Eli there, and as he got older, she'd every year bring him a new robe. He would often wear this linen ephod. He's growing into a leader. He's growing into a priest. So, again, focusing on these two corrupt priests, but notice in the background, God's doing something. Something's happening. 
Verse 20, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. You see the goodness of God here, don't you? Remember what we learned last week about Hannah? The Lord had closed her womb. The Scripture tells us that twice, making it very clear the Lord's in charge of that. He closed her womb. She couldn't have any children. But because of her faithfulness and offering her son to the Lord, He blesses her with with more. Three sons and two daughters. God is a good God. God is a rewarder to those who have suffered and who depend on Him. That's who God is. And again, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He starts to grow and develop and learn. We'll see next week he's called by the Lord into service. But here you see, again, the main focus being this corruption that's happening in the leadership, and then we get a glimpse into this little boy that God is raising up. So corrupt leaders treat worship with contempt. Again, it's helpful when you read the Bible not to say, oh, those were sins of those days. I would never sin in those ways. Now, there's a, there's a human condition where we have in us the ability, sadly enough, to fall into the sins of people from thousands of years ago, to not learn from biblical history. These sins are before the people during Jesus' time, this heavy-handed, abusive, selfish leadership that, that really has contempt for the way God has set up worship and, and man now wants to do it his own way or a different way. The prophet Malachi actually speaks to this, and I think it's fascinating to see the language of it. So turn over to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. Go to Matthew, turn left, book right before that. Malachi chapter 1, a lot of Malachi is written to the leaders of the nation, the corrupt leaders of the nation. I think it's helpful to hear how God addresses them through the prophet Malachi, similar to here in 1 Samuel. Malachi 1, pick up in verse 6. Yahweh says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father to the nation of Israel, if I then am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name. Okay, notice that word there. The priests, God says, despise him, his name. Now, I don't think, and I get that from what comes next, that the priests would say, we despise your name, Yahweh. No, they're, they're doing the sacrifices. They're ministering in the name of Yahweh. But Yahweh says, you despise my name. Verse, the, the, continuing on there in uh, verse 5, or verse 6, but you say, how have we despised your name? Well, that's quite a charge. How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. So I give you a standard, no polluted food on my altar. You offer it because, I mean, to do the work to find food that's not polluted, come on, give me a break. Let's offer this. And Yahweh's saying, that's despising my name. You offer polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You, you can do whatever you want with worship, you think. You don't have to follow my commands. They're too stringent. This whole system of sacrifice, too much for you, so you despise it. 
And you say it's okay to put polluted offerings on the altar. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. You wouldn't even give it to one of your political leaders, but you're giving it to me. Will he accept you or show favor? Show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God so that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. And then this, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. You, you know what the 21st century equivalent of that is? Hey, the Lord tells us to come to church and to do certain things, to encourage one another, to, keep, to help keep one another from sin, to protect one another all the more as the day draws near, to give. He tells us to sing. He tells us to admonish one another, to encourage one another. He tells us to sing to one another, not just to Him. He tells us all these things, and sometimes we're like, oh, church. Now, you don't say that out loud. You're smarter than that. But in your heart, in your mind, oh, wish I didn't have to go. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I hope church and all the music and everything up here is to my liking today. Oh, it's not to my liking today. We can have the same type of heart. And here he says, speaking of the temple, oh, that there would be one of you that would shut the gates. You know what he's saying? Someone in here, just close the doors of the church. Don't let anyone in. Church is closed today. I can't take it any longer, is what God is saying here. This is shocking language. The people of God cannot go through the motions with hearts that are despising Him without Him noticing it. He knows. We might fool those all around us, but He knows what's inside. Continuing on in verse 10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's not stupid. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I love this. God is so glorious that if we go through the motions and we really despise the worship he tells us to engage in, he will find other people that see him as glorious. He's that glorious. He, can, he cannot be overlooked, and it's just fine. He's glorious. The nations will know this. Reminds us of what Jesus said in Mark, right? The religious leaders of the day in Israel were rejecting true worship, true spiritual leadership, and he says, I'm going to take your field, I'm going to take what you have, and I'm going to give it to other people. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. My name will be glorious. That's what he's saying here. Verse 12, but you profane it, his name. You profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, or chapter 2, I'm sorry. The Lord's not stupid. He knows when spiritual leaders are going through the motions. He knows when people are going through the motions. He knows when His people look at church, look at tabernacle worship, look at sacrifice, look at giving, look at whatever he calls them to, and they go, oh, 
what a burden this is. What, what a, how weary is this? He knows that. And he's seeking to correct that here in the days of the judges in 1 Samuel. Recently, it's been made known that there is a prominent Christian leader, and it came out that he has been plagiarizing sermons of another prominent Christian leader. This other leader will preach the sermons, and he didn't know, but, but this other leader would take the sermons and make them his own. Pastor of a church of thousands would make the regular pattern that he would take these sermons and make them his own, even using the same illustrations. The New Testament says that pastors are to work hard in preaching and teaching. Copying and pasting isn't hard. Study is hard. Personal repentance crafting a message that helps God's people digest it, using application to, to, to speak in the lives of the people that you're supposed to be shepherding, that's not easy work. That's hard work. But evidently, this pastor looked upon that type of work, and even what the New Testament says, and despised it, held that command in contempt. It's not just pastors, though. Other leaders can also hold God's Word in contempt and fail to do what God's Word says. What about mom and dad who know they're supposed to lead their family in worship, but really sometimes after a long day come home and, oh, got to do family worship. What does that say to the Lord? Got to do it? His commands aren't burdensome. Mothers and fathers can do this. Parents can do this. Parents can teach their kids, not, not by their words, but by their example, that we go to church when we have nothing better to do. If there's nothing better, then we'll go to church. What does that teach? Or churches, when December 25th happens to fall on a Sunday. Churches that will cancel their service because December 25th is a family day. Well, if it's on the Lord's day, it's the Lord's day. It's the day where the church gathers, just like the other 51 Sundays of the year. What do we teach people? How do we use our authority? What do we show when we use our authority to say that this whole system that God sets up is rather burdensome? I don't like it. God sees clearly what's happening in the heart, and He knows what's happening with Hophni and Phinehas, and He highlights their corruption here. Corrupt leaders who treat worship with contempt. So let me just ask this to all of us. Is there any way that you are treating the commands of God to worship Him with contempt? Are you treating any of His commands with contempt? Are you despising any of His commands? Are you disregarding any of His commands, which is really to disregard Him? Is that true? Hophni and Phinehas are executed for their sin. But we have the ability to confess and to repent and to be forgiven by this God. So if there's any way that you are treating God's commands as contemptible, weary, to be despised, confess that to the Lord and ask Him for forgiveness. I love the picture of Jesus as He's growing up. You know where we find Him on the Sabbath? In the synagogue. You know what we find Him doing? Obeying the Lord. You know where we find him three times a year? 
going to Jerusalem, keeping the festivals, we see Jesus falling in line with Old Testament worship. His heart evidently isn't weary of it. He worships His Father. And in the gospel, His perfect worship is credited to our account. Us who are imperfect worshipers get the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us by faith. What a gift we have. I think if we, all, if we all did a poll, like if I went to each one of you and said, how do you despise the commands of God? We'd all have an answer. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to start over here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We'd all have an answer, wouldn't we? But in the gospel of Christ, there's forgiveness for even our sin. But here again, the focus in this passage, you see the corrupt spiritual leaders treating worship with contempt. There's a second feature of corrupt spiritual leaders or corrupt spiritual leadership. Verses 22 to 26, corrupt leaders abuse people in their care or under their care. Corrupt leaders abuse people under their care. This, these following verses are going, going to point the finger not only at Hophni and Phinehas, but also to Eli. And again, you'll see next week that Eli's sin of not restraining his sons is a problem as well. But let's notice the abuse that happens here. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. So Eli keeps hearing these reports of his son's corrupt spiritual leadership. It's fascinating to see the the senses of Eli that the author gives us. Next week we'll learn that he's blind. We also learn that he can't hear Yahweh calling when Yahweh calls to Samuel The senses of Eli are an interesting study in this section. But Eli's very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel. So he's old. The writer's showing you he's about to be off the scene, and this is what we have coming. People who are corrupt leading all of Israel. And then there's a a specific sin that's highlighted in regard to these two brothers. Earlier it was the meat. Here now it's women and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These spiritual leaders are engaging in sexual immorality with people, if you will, in the congregation, women in the congregation, coming to worship at the tent of meeting. And he, Eli, said to them, why do you do such things? And we think, that's a great start, Dad. Not enough. For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people, No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will meditate, mediate for him. I'm sorry, mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So Eli knows your sin isn't just against these women. There might be a mediator here for them. But your sin's against God. Who's going to mediate for you? You're in trouble with the living God, is what the Father is saying to these sons. But notice this, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why wouldn't they listen? Because they didn't want to hear it, because they were convicted, because they're just tired of dad talking. No, they wouldn't listen because of judgment from God. They wouldn't listen to the voice of their father because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. You could say it this way, they wouldn't listen because they couldn't listen. But ask the question, why couldn't they listen? because they were so deep in their own sin. They had disregarded God for so long, there came a point where he said, have what you want. Do what you want. 
and that was his judgment. We see that in Romans 1. Romans 1 talking about an evil society, and it says that he then, and it says this repeatedly in Romans 1, he will ultimately give them over to their sin. Have what you want, the scariest type of judgment there is. These boys wouldn't repent because they couldn't repent because they wouldn't repent. That's what happens here. They are to blame. And then, verse 26, remember that little boy? Remember that cute little priest? Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So Samuel, here in the background, is growing in stature. He's getting bigger. He's physically growing. And he's growing also in favor with the Lord. He's increasingly becoming pleasing to the Lord. And not just the Lord, and also with man. Notice the contrast. Hophni and Phinehas abuse women, and Samuel grows and is pleasing to the Lord and with other people. God's going to do something. Even when there's spiritual abuse, God will raise up people who please Him, leaders who please Him, and leaders who care for others and are, have this good relationship with others under their care. Reminds us of Jesus. You know, there's not a, lot of G, not a lot of talk about Jesus from the time after he's born, maybe two years old or so, to the time he goes into his public ministry around 30 years of age. There's not a lot. But we do get li- a little picture of what he would have been like as a 12-year-old. Luke 2.52 says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, so he's learning as a 12-year-old boy. He's understanding things as a 12-year-old boy. He grew in stature. He got bigger. He developed in every way a boy would at 12 years old. And he grew in favor with God and with men. So again, pleasing to God as he grows up and also pleasing to other people. He would have been a boy you would have wanted to be around. Jesus was appealing to people. And we see Here in 1 Samuel, this picture of corruption and abuse of other people, women in particular, and in the background, this little boy who's going to be pleasing to people and pleasing to God. But again, the focus here, the highlight is on these two evil brothers who are abusing other people under their care. Again, 1,100 years later, Jesus comes and He rebukes the leaders of Israel and He says that they, among other things, devour widows' houses. Poor widows who were in such need. There's no social security that day. There were certain widows who didn't have children that could care for them in their old age. And so the believing community, specifically the leaders of Israel, were to see to it that these people were cared for. And instead of being cared for, these leaders, wealthy, would get their income by devouring widows' houses, telling widows they had to give exorbitant sacrifices to God. We looked at that in Mark. And so these poor ladies would give this income even to the detriment of their own livelihood, and they, these leaders would take it, line their own pockets. Again, nothing new. Happened in 1 Samuel, happens in the time of Jesus. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells His own followers, be careful of those leaders who lord it over people, those leaders who lead with a heavy hand. They threaten, they demand, they They use their voice to intimidate. That's worldly leadership. Jesus' leadership is different. True leadership, according to Christ, is you serve. 
You serve. You die for those under your care. You sacrifice for those under your care. See Jesus himself. But these leaders in Jesus' day and also Hophni and Phinehas back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, they abuse people. We all have stories of this. This is real life. This isn't just something written in a book. This isn't make-believe. Think of a man I went to seminary with, quiet, humble, apparently humble man. The guy that if you said, which, which one of these graduating class members are going to fall into sin? You never take that poll. But if you did, you wouldn't pick him at all. He wouldn't be, clo- he wouldn't be close to the top. No way. Well, this guy gets into ministry after a few years, starts counseling a woman by herself, away from her husband, repeatedly, and ends up committing adultery with this woman, leaving his family, wife and kids behind. This is spiritual abuse that wrecks people who are involved in the situation. Not only did he wreck his own family, his wife and his kids, he also wrecked her family. He's abusing her in the name of love. Again, this isn't just pastors, dads and moms who walk into church with their kids, who even read the Bible with their kids, and then privately in rooms where no one's around abuse their kids. It's the same type of thing that happens. The age-old problem, spiritual abuse, So whether you're a mom, dad, pastor, deacon, husband, coach, teacher, boss, anybody who has any authority over anybody, let me ask you the question, are people under your care suffering in any way? Or are they thriving? Are they suffering or are they thriving? If they are thriving, praise the Lord. If they are suffering, today's a day of repentance. I'll remind you that Sometimes we can swing the pendulum so far. You see you're a part of or you understand you've been victimized by spiritual abuse. And so the wrong response is to swing the pendulum so far to where no one's ever going to lead me ever. Well, that's not a biblical thought either. The sweet spot is in following the Lord's lead as he puts leaders over you, but also expecting that leadership should be good. Authority is a good gift in the Scriptures. And just like any other good gift, time, money, sexuality, it can be abused. In and of itself, authority is good. It's a gift from God. God gives good authority. Government, He gives good authority in families. He gives good authority in spiritual leadership. But people who take that delegated authority and abuse it hurt people. Authority is good. I think of sometimes the tendency to swing the pendulum to the other end when I talk to people who maybe have been abused by other churches or spiritual leaders, and they may come and talk to me and say something like, you know, these, these, this past spiritual leader abused me in this way, and your heart breaks for it. Sometimes people come and say, that, that church, you know, was so heavy-handed and did this and that, and, and sometimes you actually listen to them talk, and all that that previous pastor or church did was actually just call them out on their actual sin. So, not liking what a spiritual leader says isn't abuse. It could be, 
but it could also mean that you're in sin and they're just doing what's biblical. Looking at mom and dad and saying, you know, you're abusing me, you're being heavy-handed because you're telling me this or that, when they're actually just telling you something biblical is not abuse. You just don't like it. But there is real abuse that happens. There is real abuse that happens. Authority is abused in certain situations. And I just want to take a moment to commend those of you who've come out of churches that have had heavy hands, abusive, legalistic teachings, and you've been hurt by it, and you come to another church, whether it's this or you're part of another church and you're just visiting, and you come and you still say, I know authority is good. That past authority was abusive, but I know authority is good. Lord, I trust you. Praise the Lord for that type of thinking. Even in this book, remember, in the original, we don't have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. These were two books written together. So in our 2 Samuel, still part of this book that we're studying here, in our 2 Samuel, David, the new king, so you have this, you have this inept king Saul that we'll get to later, then you have a king after God's own heart, David himself. David himself talks about the importance of good authority. Listen to these words. At the end of 2 Samuel in chapter 23, he says this, when one rules justly over men, okay, so good authority, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Now, think about it right now. I mean, here in Prescott, we have like the greatest weather in the United States. Don't tell anyone else, okay? We have this great weather. You walk outside on a day like we're having now. You walk outside and it's a little cool, but the sun's still out. It's special. David highlights that good authorities like that. It's a blessing. It dawns on them like the morning light. What have we been doing for, what have we been doing for a couple of years? We've been praying for rain, right? What have we had this summer in the monsoon season? Rain. And you drive around, you see the green that happens, the life that the rain gives. Well, David goes on in 2 Samuel 23. He says, He dawns on them like the morning light, this good leadership, like the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Good leadership is like that rain that gives life. So again, the Bible highlights human good authority. But there, is, there are times when abuses come. That doesn't mean you throw the idea of authority all the way out. The Bible highlights good authority, and it's incumbent upon us, pastors, moms, dads, husbands, employers, coaches, teachers, who, whatever authority you have as a follower of Christ, to exercise that authority in the way that God desires you to. And what will that look like? It'll benefit those under your care. They'll be protected. They'll be taught they'll be instructed, they'll be warned, they'll be guarded, they'll be loved. That's what the Bible intends for us. I want you to notice one other thing before we move on. Verse 25 again, Eli telling his sons, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That person's in trouble with God. And this is the cry of the Old Testament. Job himself in Job 9 says, where's the one that can be an arbiter between me and God? I've, I've, got, I've got a chasm. I've got a problem with the living God. Who is there that can lay his hands on both of us? 
If there were two of you that are going through difficulty today, and I said, hey, let me meet together with you, and we talk together, and I kind of do this kind of picture of, of wanting you to be united together, and I take one over here, I put my hand on your head, and put my other hand on this person's head, and, and I pray for you and say, I want you two to be, to be together, one, and, and me here touching you, touching you, linking you guys together as a way of showing, I want you to be unified, Eli's saying, hey, you sin against some of these ladies, against these people. There's someone that can mediate this and hopefully bring restoration somehow. But you sin against God? Who in the world can connect God and man back together and do a reconciled relationship? Eli's saying that's a problem. Job feels that problem. That's the problem. So you've got two people. You've got, you've got God, this deity, this creator, and you've got man. And, and listen, in, in a human context, both, pro, both people have problems. Both people have sinned against one another. In the divine context, context, you've got God who's never done anything wrong to his creatures. He's created them. He's given them all that they need. He's been good to them. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Even those who rebel against him are, are given common grace gifts like rain and love, marriage and kids and joy and vacations and sunsets and Prescott. They get all these good gifts. But every single person has rebelled against God. And so you've got God on one side and rebellious man and woman and child on this side. And there is a problem. But God, because he's gracious, sent his son. And what's his son called? in the Scriptures. He's called the one mediator between God and between men, and He unites God and man. What do the sons of Eli do when their dad brings up mediator talk and repentance and their sin? What do they do? They don't listen. If you are a rebel to the living God, if you are at odds with Him, I'm praying today that today would not be a day where you hear this and you go away putting your hands over your head, over your hands, over your ears, not listening. Today is a day to embrace the mediator that God has given. Listen, I just want to go back to 1100 BC and tell Eli, interrupt this conversation and tell these two young men and tell this father, there is a mediator. There's a mediator between God and men. Can you believe that? There's a mediator. You boys can be forgiven for what you've done to these women and this nation. You can be forgiven, and this mediator will suffer because of what you've done. You can have that, but I don't think they would have listened. But you can. Paul told Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus Christ came to solve our sin problem, the problem that keeps us from the living God. He came to reconcile us to God. There's a third feature of corrupt spiritual leadership. It's this, verses 27 to 36, corrupt leaders are judged by God. So they're, they view God's ways as contemptible. They despise God. They disregard Him. They abuse people under their care. And third, we learn here in this last section, they won't get away with it. Corrupt leaders are judged by God. Eli and his sons will pay for the sin. <coughs> Verse 27, 
and there came a man of God to Eli. We don't know this guy's name. We don't know where he's from. We just know God sent someone. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. What he's saying here is, Eli, or, yeah, Eli, look back to your history. You're part of the tribe of Levi. Your family has been cared for all along. Ever since I brought your people out of Egypt, I have put that special family in charge of the sacrifices of Israel, and I've fed you. I've given you all that you've needed. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices? The same things that feed you, you despise. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by, notice this, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of the offering, every offering of my people Israel. Now, if, when I was reading earlier, you heard Eli rebuking his sons and you thought, man, why does Eli get such a bad rap? I mean, he's clearly telling his sons they're in sin. Here you go. Because he was benefiting from their spiritual corruption and that didn't seem to bother him. He's fattening himself and later on in the text we learn that Eli died a fat man. Why was he fat? Because he took the meat that didn't belong to him. He took the meat that belonged to the worshipers of God and to God himself. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices, verse 29, and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now... The Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God's saying, we had a way of doing things. Your family was going to be this priesthood forever. But because of what you've done, because of this abusive, contemptible, worthless leadership, I'm making a change. Verse 31, listen, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Everyone coming from your family line will die young. Then, in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Your family will suffer and the nation will thrive. And you'll look on that, and there won't be an old man in your family line. They'll all die young. And you'll be envious. You'll wish you could share in some of that prosperity of Israel. Actually, there's one person that will be old in your family. The only one, verse 33, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared. Why? Why will this person be spared? To weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. I'll leave one of you alive for a long time to cry over the fate of your family because of what you've done. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to, to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. This happens in chapter 4, verse 11. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Friends, corrupt spiritual leadership isn't the end of the story. I will raise up for you a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart 
and in my mind. What God wants, what He desires, what He thinks will be what this upcoming priest, this upcoming leader has in His heart and in His mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, before my anointed forever. This is probably looking forward to a new family of priests, still Levites, but a new family of priests. Zadok, who is the priest uh, for King David. This is probably what this is pointing to. Ultimately, we know of an eternal priesthood, Jesus Christ, the eternal priest who Hebrews 7.25 says always lives to make intercession for us. We also know that Jesus is also the king, not just the priest. He's also the king who's anointed forever. So God's pointing forward to a time where His people are going to be blessed under good leadership. And everyone who is left in your house, Eli, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. That family is going to be decimated, destroyed because of their sin. If you read that, if you hear that part and you think, man, God's intense, you're right. If you think, God's over the top. He's too harsh. Well, now you're wrong. Our problem isn't that God's too harsh. Our problem is that we think too little of our sin. We don't know the holiness of God. Every one of these detailed prophecies are appropriate for the Creator to give to the creatures who've rebelled against Him. Us being separate from God for eternity, judged by God, punished by God for eternity, is appropriate. Hell is not God overreacting. Hell is God being completely and righteously just. And if we're honest, we want a perfectly righteous God because then no spiritual abuser, no child abuser, no person who hurts other people will ever get away from it, and that's what we want. We want this God. This God is not just a just God, however. This God is a merciful God. And those who cry to Him in repentance, cry out to Him for salvation, He hears. He responds to. We get the best of both worlds. A God who's perfectly just and will punish every wrong, and a God who's also merciful to people who cry out to Him for mercy. This is the God to trust and to love and to worship and to follow. But if you're a person like Hophni or Phineas, if you're a dad who abuses those under your care, a mom who abuses those under your care, a pastor, a leader, whoever you are who abuses people under your care, if you do not go to God for mercy, you will not find mercy, you'll find judgment. God will do something about corrupt leaders. I think there are some lessons for the church. I'll conclude with this. As I'm going through this and seeing, even in our day and age, prominent, famous, celebrity, spiritual leaders who fall, who it turns out have been abusing other people. There there are so many, there are too many to name. As we look at a landscape and see that, it's a good reminder, nobody is so impressive in their public ministry that they cannot be judged by God. Oh, oh, 
we kind of think like that guy's kind of got an in with God. Well, when we see and learn later there were things hidden that he was doing to other people, no, no, no. God's not impressed by his ministry to where, oh, I'm not going to judge you. I mean, look how many radio stations you're on. Look how many books you've written. No, no, no. God's not impressed by spiritual leadership. God's not impressed by fake spiritual leadership. God knows what he's doing. God sees the heart. That's a theme that we'll see throughout this book. God sees the heart. Nobody is so impressive or too impressive to be judged by God. Secondly, for those who are guilty of corrupt spiritual leadership, again, whether it's pastoral, whether it's in the family, no matter where it is, for those that are guilty, the call is to repent. The call is not hide, blame others, or run away. Dave read a passage earlier in our uh, in the Scripture reading, Revelation 2. In Revelation 2 and 3, you see Jesus rebuking a number of churches. He never tells them, listen, I've seen this sin, so here's what you do. Change the name of your church so no one knows that you're the bad people from before. But what do we do today when our church has a bad testimony? We change the name. We rebrand. We might fool the people in our city, but God's not fooled by that. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, isn't stupid. There's actually a pastor that advocates, keep the old name. Keep the old name. You're known for this corruption. Keep the old name, and over time, ask the Lord to give you a different testimony so that you're known for something else. That's repentance. So don't change your name, or if you're an individual, don't run away to a different church to hide. You're spiritually abusive. You've hurt others under your care. This church notices it. They rebuke you for it, and in the midst of that discipline process, you run and you move to Pennsylvania. Maybe no one will find me here in this church. Christ will. God will. Judgment begins with the household of God. The response is to confess and to repent, not to run, not to hide, not to hire a PR firm for your church. Not to act like you've done more good than bad. Not to try to cover up your sin. Not to try to shut people up. Not to make them sign non-disclosure agreements. Not to threaten them that if they say something, you're going to bring up dirt on them. No, the, the solution to being right with God again and to right with other people is to repent. Is to acknowledge it. I give you David. David the man after God's own heart. We're going to get to that in chapters 15 and 16, transition from Saul to David. Oh, Saul, inept ruler. We got David, a man after God's own heart. You know what David did? Abused a woman, murdered a man, committed adultery, misled a nation. Where's David right now? With God. Why? He turned from his sin. He repented. He acknowledged his sin before God. And the Nathan, the prophet, speaking for God himself, said, God has forgiven your sin. And David didn't get away with it. He suffered earthly consequences for his sin, and Jesus Christ paid the consequences of receiving the wrath of God for David. That sin didn't get overlooked. It got punished on another. 
which is the same story for all of us who will be in heaven. Because we've turned from our sin, we've repented of our sin, we haven't hid it, we haven't blamed another person, we simply said, I'm the sinner, I need my mediator. And that mediator responds and saves. So let me say it this way, all of us have failed in spiritual leadership. (laughs) But by God's grace, those who go to Him in repentance can be restored to Him and to other people. The worst thing to do is to run away, hide, blame shift. Another lesson for the church, and I'll be done with this, another lesson, the failure of a spiritual leader is not the end of the story. God would raise up a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, and a perfect king whose name is Jesus Christ to rightly rule and care for His people. And what do His people know Him as, according to John 10, the good shepherd, the one who's the leader of the sheep and who lays down his life for the sheep. And this good shepherd would teach his followers, this is how you lead other people. You lay down your life for them. You care for them. You sacrifice for them. God's not done. You might have been abused in some spiritual context. Maybe it was in the home. Maybe it was in the church. But God has still gifted this world with sound spiritual leadership. You might not have a father or mother that led you spiritually, but there are fathers and mothers in the church that could come and care for you. And listen, the abusers get all the press, and we think there are more of them out there than there are the righteous ones. Not true. It's just that those of you who are faithful to lead others, you're not as known as the abusers. But just notice and recognize the church has been helped along by people ministering in the name of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord, with the grace the Lord gives. The Lord raises up spiritual leaders because He cares for His church. They're not perfect, but they're also not abusive, and they want to grow and they want to care for those whom God has entrusted to them. I was reminded of this I started the message by telling you of a, that conference we went to and how people were talking about that podcast. Um, something else happened at that conference that I want you to know about and be encouraged by. We, uh, Dave and Brad and I, Saturday night, got invited to go to um, a gentleman's house with another set of three elders from another church. So two churches coming together, just getting to know each other, fellowshipping together at this, this gentleman's house. We were sitting around the backyard, and the elders of this church were from a church of a previously prominent evangelical celebrity, a famous celebrity pastor who many of you have heard preach before. Many of you have probably been helped by in the past. Well, it came out a couple years ago that this man had been grooming a woman under his care in his ministry a married woman, younger woman, to, to engage in sexual immorality with him. One of the men that was with us this evening was his son in the faith, had been discipled by this famous man, was being pastored by this famous man. And this gentleman that was with us, this son in the faith of this famous one, um, recounted the story of how he had to be one of the two people that went and confronted this man and his sin, his spiritual father he's going to confront. And the spiritual father asked him to cover it up. And 
you could see the, the pain. I talked, I talked with this gentleman the next day, Sunday, about this, and we had a time of sweet prayer and fellowship, and he talked about how hard it was to confront his spiritual father, and he said the hardest thing was his response to it, to ask them, his spiritual sons, to cover it up. This pastor, this guy then became the head of the church as this other famous celebrity was disciplined out of the church. This, now our new friend here in this backyard where we're enjoying time together, this man was now the senior pastor of the church, and, and he talked about how difficult the last few years had been, but he also talked about how the Lord had renewed that church, helped care for that church, and the Lord had placed a new person after the heart of God in leadership over that precious flock. And just a reminder to me this week as I've been studying this and have my new friend there in Portland (laughs) that I'm reminded to pray for regularly, as I'm thinking about this, as I prepare this message, I think that's what God does. Man ruins what God has given as a good gift, but God still keeps caring for His people and He gives them good leadership. Again, the ultimate picture being Jesus Christ. So, the last thing I want to highlight is God will continue His work in the world. You may come from backgrounds that are full of bruises and scars, spiritually and physically, but God also raises up faithful leaders to help shepherd and care for you. Ultimately, our trust should be in God, not any man, ultimately in God who cares for His sheep. I'll finish by reminding you of Hebrews 13, 7. God doesn't throw out leadership. Fine, we're doing this a different way. No, no, no. He just calls His leaders to faithfulness. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider not their celebrity status, not their charisma. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So find people who can lead you and see their faith. And always remember, Jesus Christ is the eternal one who never changes, never abuses his sheep. Let's pray together. Father, it is a difficult subject to look at the way people abuse those under their care. We praise you that you're a just God. We praise you that everything done in secret, every secret email, phone call, every corner of a room is noticed by you. We praise you for your justice. Father, I also ask you for the gift of repentance on behalf of people here who might be those who have failed to lead their families and maybe even caused their families harm. Maybe people in here that have failed to lead the, the Christian groups that they're a part of. Maybe they've caused those, group har- those people in those groups with harm with false teaching or bad leadership or heavy-handedness, whatever it may be. Father, give us the gift of repentance today and restoration. Give us the gift of good leadership and thriving in life. Father, empower all of us. Every single Christian is someone who has influence over other people. So empower us with good, good authority, which represents your Son well. 
and causes other people to grow and develop and to be nurtured and protected. Father, answer these prayers, please, for the glory of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.